This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Welcome to Radio EcoShock. I have lots for you in this program. We'll hear two reports direct from Paris, plus an interview on the best and maybe the only way to really save the future. But first, I want you to hear 10 minutes from the former NASA scientist who warned us all about climate change back in 1988. Here is Dr. James Hansen speaking December 2nd at a press conference at COP21, the big climate summit in Paris. The problem is that fossil fuels appear to the consumer to be the cheapest energy. They're not really cheapest because they don't include their full cost to society. They're partially subsidized, but mainly they don't include the effects of air pollution and water pollution on human health. If your child gets asthma, you have to pay the bill. The fossil fuel company doesn't. And the climate effects, which are beginning to be significant and will be much larger in the future, are also not included in the uh, price of the fossil fuels. So the solution would be fairly straightforward. Let's add into the price of fossil fuels the, the, the total cost, which you can't do suddenly, but you can do it gradually over time so that you can, people have uh, time to adjust. So I argue that this should be done, it has to be across the board, across all fossil fuels, coal, oil, and gas, at the source, the domestic mine or the port of entry. And I also argue that that money should be given to the public, given equal amount to all legal residents of the country. That way the person who does better than average in limiting their carbon footprint will actually make money. And in fact, two-thirds of the people uh, would come out ahead and it would also address the growing income inequality in the world, which is occurring in almost all countries, because the low-income people would tend to uh, have a lower carbon footprint. People who fly around the world and have big houses would pay more, but they can afford to do that. So that's, that's a uh, transparent, market-based solution, a conservative solution, which stimulates the economy. The economic studies in the United States uh, show that after 10 years, if you added $10 a ton of CO2 carbon fee, distributed the money to the public, after 10 years it would reduce emissions 30%, and after 20 years more than 50%. And it would spur the economy, creating more than 3 million new jobs. Furthermore, this is the only viable international approach. You cannot ask each of 190 countries to individually limit their emissions. What we have to do is have the price of fossil fuels honest. That requires only a few of the major players to agree, let's have a rising uh, common uh, carbon fee And those countries that don't want to have that fee will put a border duty on products from those countries. And furthermore, we will rebate to our manufacturers the carbon fee when they export a a product to a uh, non-participating nation. So this, economists agree, is a fair way to do it, and it could rapidly move us off of fossil fuels. 
But what we are hearing is, uh, although uh, Christiana Figueres says uh, many have said we need a carbon price and investment would be so much easier with a carbon price, but life is much more complex than that. So what we're talking about instead is the same old thing, the same old thing that was tried in Kyoto, asking each country to promise, oh, I'll reduce my emissions, I will cap my emissions, I'll reduce them 20% or whatever they decide is their, they can do. You know, in science, when you do a well-controlled experiment and get a well-documented result, you expect that if you do the experiment again, you're going to get the same result. So why are we talking about doing the same thing again? Um, I, you know, I, I, I don't like to be, use crude language, but I learned this from my mother, so I'll use it anyway. This, this, uh, this is half-assed and it's half-baked. It's half-assed because there's no way to make it global. You have to beg each nation. So I, I went to Germany to, to speak with, um, I was hoping to speak to Merkel, but I got cut off at um, Sigmar Gabriel, the minister. Uh, and, um, you know, I said, well, he, he said, oh, we're going to do cap and trade, cap and trade with offsets. And I said, that, that won't work. We've tried that. Uh, and so I said, what's the cap on India? And, and he said, we'll tighten our carbon cap. Well, it, uh, Germany is now 2% of the world emissions. So him tightening the German carbon cap is not going to solve the problem. You've got to have something that will work globally. And it's half-baked because there's no, there's no enforcement mechanism. You know, what I hear is all the ministers are coming here, or the heads of state, and they're planning to clap each other on the back and say, oh, we're really doing great. We're, this is a very successful conference, and we're going to address the climate problem. Well, I'm, what, if, if that's what happens, then we're screwing the next generation and the following ones because we're being stupid in doing the same thing again that we did what, 18 uh, years so ago? Yeah, so what's the effect of, you know, you try very hard and you say, okay, we're going to reduce our nation's emissions. Well, or an individual reduces their emissions. The, one effect of that is to reduce the demand for the product and keep the price low. As long as fossil fuels are dirt cheap, they will keep being used. It's like burning coal is like burning dirt. You just take a bulldozer and you can bulldoze it out of the ground. It's very cheap, but you, it does not include its cost to society. It's a very dirty fuel with some negative effects, which we now understand very well. We can't pretend that we don't know what's going to happen if we stay on this path. So, so this is the, the path we're on, you know. The, the, to pretend that what we're doing is having any effect... You know, it might slow down the rate uh, of growth, but that's not what's needed. Science tells us we have to actually reduce emissions rapidly. And furthermore, the economic studies show that if you put an honest price on, fossil, on carbon emissions, 
you would reduce emissions rapidly. But if you don't have that price on there, you're not going to reduce the emissions. You will reduce the emissions someplace, but then it keeps the price low, so somebody else will burn it. And that that economic study you're referring to also found that if you put $10 per ton and increase it $10 per ton over 10 years, what was the effect in jobs? Well, in the case of the United States economy, that's where the study was done in detail. It was 3 million new jobs in 10 years and uh, a significant increase in GNP. So we, we we need energy. But people thinking, oh, we have to do less well yeah we should have energy efficiency but that would be encouraged by a rising price uh, but we do need energy we need energy to raise the poor people out of poverty that's the best way to keep population under control those countries that have become wealthy now have fertility rates that are below the replenishment level so we need and the w- reason they these countries became wealthy is because they had energy, and that energy was fossil fuels. Unfortunately, we can't continue to use that as the mechanism to get out of poverty. We need to have clean energies, and the way to make that happen is to have this. We, I, you know, I've met with um, captains of industry, I call them, leaders of not only utilities but even uh, oil companies, These people have children and grandchildren. They would like to be part of the solution. If the government would give them the right incentive by putting this across-the-board rising carbon fee, they say they would change their investments and they could do it rapidly. So it's not that the problem can't be solved, but it's not being solved. And nothing that I've heard so far indicates that we're intending to... it's It's not too complex... It's the simplest approach you could have. It's Just have an honest, uh, simple, rising carbon fee. That was Dr. James Hansen speaking in Paris on December 2nd at the COP21 briefing. Next up, Lindsay Allen, the Executive Director of the Rainforest Action Network, or RAN, dials in from Paris. From the Rainforest Action Network, a new guest to speak to us. So we're just in the middle of the conference. Please introduce yourself to our listeners on Radio EcoShock. Sure. Well, thanks for having me, Alex. This is Lindsay Allen from Rainforest Action Network, and I'm the executive director here and one of a couple of delegation members that we have in Paris this week. All right. Now, it's a very confusing situation. I understand there's at least 40,000 people there for this conference. What are some of your impressions so far? I would say my impressions are that there are high-level talks, lots of bilateral deals, and quite a bit of activity that's happening outside of the kind of official delegate zone that's being underreported. All right. Now, along those lines, it's pretty hard to get a climate action going in a city that's kind of locked down due to the terrorist attack. How are you getting around that as an activist organization? Well, I think there are so many folks who understand that we cannot allow our voices to be silenced at a moment where climate justice is a critical imperative for so many people around the world. And so even when I arrived on Sunday, you know, it had followed a morning opening prayer led by indigenous groups at the site of the Bataclan. Uh, It was followed by a massive display of shoes of all of the Parisians and folks from around the world, including the shoes of Ban Ki-moon and the Pope, demonstrating all of the people who would have wanted to be in the streets that day, speaking up for climate justice and climate equity. 
and then there was a massive human chain that stretched all along, you know, for blocks and blocks, um, thousands of people just stretching as a way of getting around some of the protest bands, very peacefully assembled, but giving you a taste of what the big marches could have looked like. And at the same time, even today, there was, you know, yesterday, BNP Paribas, there was a big protest outside of that bank, given that they have funneled so much money in, they're sponsoring the COP, and at the same time, they've funneled so much money into coal, you know, about to the tune of 17 billion euros since, you know, the last big Copenhagen talks. Uh, and then today, there's a, a massive, it's being called this climate solutions gathering, and it's cities and mayors that want to take action, but it's also this space for so much corporate greenwash. And dozens of protesters have been disrupting those activities throughout the day, calling attention to the fact that capitalism is not going to provide the solution. We need a change to business as usual in order to ensure climate justice. And, you know, you see buses and buses and buses of police pull up, but there is this sentiment that this is too important for us to be silenced. Are there organizing groups of developing countries, the voices that we don't hear from, not talking about Germany or America or Canada or Australia, are the other countries getting organized and getting a voice in this conference? I would say in the official part of the conference, the voices that you expect to be dominating are, you know, and it it is very much a game, uh, like a big power game where there's bilateral deals, there's side conversations going, groups that are under-resourced would have very little ability to influence the talks. But I think at the same time, there's this realization that, you know, what is movements have never been led by diplomats and elites and elected officials. They're led by the people who really understand what is at stake. And so at every margin of these talks, you know, there are voices from the Global South and frontline communities from North America and indigenous voices that are refusing to be silenced. And just a couple examples, indigenous rising, um, it takes root to weather the storm. There are folks that are just taking the opportunity to disrupt spaces as a way of making sure that everyone recognizes they're there. And while they are at the forefront of the climate chaos that we're already starting to see, they're also making clear that they are the leaders and they're at the forefront of these solutions. You know, I just did a show on the Indonesian peat fires, and it struck me doing that, talking with the scientists, that it almost doesn't matter if we get rid of our SUV and get a fuel-efficient car, or even if we close a couple of coal plants, if we let this tropical biomass burn up into the atmosphere. I know Rainforest Action Network has been at the center of that for years. What are your thoughts? Absolutely. Absolutely. So we are um, echoing the call that has come from a number of civil society organizations within Indonesia demanding that the president of Indonesia enforce existing laws, that Indonesia take seriously this kind of pledge and commitment to really reduce its emissions. You know, it's important to point out that while the fires were burning for, you know, weeks, just this, they're still burning now, but when they were really intensely raging a few weeks ago in the lead up to Paris, it's important to know that those emissions exceeded the missions of the U.S. economy. And there was a time where Indonesia, because of the burning of these rainforests and peat swamps, became the world's largest emitter. And that is not something that's really being focused on enough at these talks. And if we're serious about a climate solution, we need to be thinking about how to reduce those emissions. 
And we also know that the Indonesian government cannot do it alone. So they are asking for aid. The countries who have done the least to create the problem that we're in now, the least developed countries, should be supported in working to reduce their emissions. And we also know that as North Americans, which I'm based in the U.S., we are consuming products that are coming from these raging fires. The fires are being intentionally set by palm oil and pulp and paper companies in order to clear land, to plant these monocrops, to create cheap paper or uh, pulp that goes into your fashion or the cheapest vegetable oil in the world, which is palm oil. And so if you go to rand.org, you can see how we can all take action to shift the market dynamics so that the Indonesian government can do more to stop these fires. And I know that uh, Rainforest Action Network has also been very active in tracking down who finances coal plants. It's kind of gratifying to see that the coal industry is is collapsing, really. Their their stock values are collapsing, and, and people who didn't heed the advice of environmentalists to get out of those investments have lost a lot of money. What's happening on the coal front? Yes. So um, there was actually an article today, Friday, that Bloomberg Business put out, and it talked about how this, rag, you know, quote, ragtag band of activists is taking on the financing sector to come out of coal. And whatever they decide to call, you know, Rainforest Action Network and our allies, the fact is that banks know, and they're increasingly demonstrating with their policies and commitments, that coal is unbankable. And so in the last year, we've had Bank of America, Citibank, Morgan Stanley, and Wells Fargo all make commitments to phase out their support for the coal mining sector. And at the same time, we know that our current economic scenarios and financial institutions are not going to provide the solution for stabilizing our climate. So while we're demanding they do more, we're also challenging the fact that our economic system is continuing to support coal in all the methods that it is. What is your organization hoping to do at this COP21 meeting? Well, we have a couple of goals. So um, we are watching to make sure that the voices of those who are often excluded from the talks are incorporated into some of the conversations happening within, you know, what's what's called the blue zone, which is the area that's kind of sealed off to diplomats and observers. And we're doing that through watchdogging what commitments are made, sharing information, um, working to lobby and to disrupt conversations. At the same time, we're also, you know, we know that the outcome of Paris will not be based on what diplomats agreed to. Uh, we need to stabilize the climate. We need to limit our emissions at a 1.5 degree temperature shift. And at best, we're going to get close to three coming out of these talks. Now, the momentum that we're seeing, we know, is coming from the fact that people-powered solutions and pressure that we are leveraging within each of our countries is starting to force our elected leaders to take things more seriously. And so part of what we're doing here is we're networking with all of our like-minded counterparts from across the globe who are demanding climate justice and equity and a reduction of emissions in order to build a much stronger movement so that while the floor might be set in Paris for the minimum amount that everyone will leave committing to reduce emissions, we will all go home and continue to push to stop dirty extractive projects, to stop financing of those projects, and to push for local solutions that are real solutions that will create climate equity. We're starting to run out of time. Is there anything else that you would like our listeners to know as your report from Paris? 
I mean, the the one thing that I would recommend is, you know, there's this sense, I think, it's that's being reported from outside of Paris that there's almost a clampdown on dissent and on protest. And I would say that there is like a vital heartbeat that we can feel. And although it is not as obvious as it might have been due to the crackdown on dissent, we should all know that it's surging and we can all be a part of that when we go back to our respective, respective countries or when we are at home. And the opportunity that we all have is to take hold of this moment and to decide what we are going to do to help stabilize the climate for ourselves and with others in our communities. Thank you very much. Thank you, Alex. Radio EcoShock. That was Lindsay Allen, Executive Director of the Rainforest Action Network. Tune in to their important work at RAN.org. That's R-A-N dot org. From Paris, we welcome back University of Ottawa climate scientist Paul Beckwith. Hello, Paul. Hi, Alex. How are you this evening? It's this evening for me, anyway. <laughs> in Paris. Well, we should tell listeners this is being recorded on Friday, December 4th, as the talks are ongoing. Can you give us a kind of midterm report as we chat today, Paul? Yeah, sure. These cops are always a little bit hectic because, like, there's a, well, about 40,000 people at this one. I think uh, the numbers would have been even 60,000, but the French government put a cap on the number of people, which I guess is why. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, that, it's a bit ridiculous to have this many people here. Uh, I think probably the more people you have, the less chance you have of getting agreements and so on. But, uh, but no, it's been uh, good. I mean, it's my second cop, as you know. I was in Lima, Peru last year. And there wasn't too much expectation that things would happen in Lima. It was just more of a preparatory thing for Paris. So, so this is the year. This is a very important year. So I've been going to a mixture of negotiations, side events uh, by scientists. Today it was mostly investment community and uh, climate change, what they're doing. Wow. So did you get a sense of what they are doing? Well, it was interesting because early in the afternoon, there was a talk by Mark Carney, who is head of the central bank in the, in the UK now, um, right? He's Canadian. He went over there for that role. And he was talking with Michael Bloomberg, the mayor of, uh, was the mayor of New York City and also, uh, you know, head of large uh, financial uh, investments and so on. So they were talking about the necessity of the investment community really getting to grips with the fact that we will be reducing CO2 emissions. Like, it's going to have to happen. I mean, already we're transitioning to renewables at a very slow pace, and it can be done way, way faster. And they were both of the view that most people in the investment community are becoming more aware of climate change, but they're still not there. They're going to be completely surprised by things like demand destruction, you know, as the world shifts away, well, there'll be less and less demand and the prices uh, won't go up any, anywhere. And this, of course, will be very bad for Canada. I mean, we've already seen our dollar, you know, drop significantly in Canada, right? To, uh, we were hovering about 90, 95 cents, um, and now we're 75 cents. And, uh, you know, if there's a, uh, if out of Paris and subsequent meetings, uh, we do get a global price on carbon, which I think is inevitable. It's just a matter of when. Then our uh, economy is going to take a big hit in Canada because of the uh, Harper government putting all the eggs in the fossil fuel basket. Well, the same thing has happened to Brazil, who were really counting on their offshore oil and gas, and uh, they've just gone into a depression, according to Goldman Sachs. 
Russia is struggling with their budget. I mean, it's this is going to be a worldwide change, but a change for the better, we hope. Look, Paul, according to The Guardian, the Pacific Island nations who will be swallowed up by rising seas are pushing to lower the supposed safe limit from 2 degrees C of warming to 1.5 degrees. I'll bet you no one else wants to talk about that. Am I right? Well, actually, that's not quite true. You know, the two degrees is not a scientific number, as we know. It's a number that was, that came out of Copenhagen, I believe, and uh, most scientists think that it's too high. I mean, it's, uh, you know, look, we're, we're just over one degree, and we're getting all of these extreme weather events, and, you know, these extreme weather events, that they happen simultaneously uh, in food-producing areas, and we would go into a global food crisis. So the islands have, have all been saying 1.5 but I think there's actually about 100 countries or something altogether that sort of agree with the uh, 1.5 number versus the 2-degree number. But those countries are not the dominant, any of the dominant countries on the planet. They do have, uh, Tuvula does have a lot of um, company, a lot of other countries, you know, on board with their 1.5-degree number. But getting back to the investment side of it, this afternoon there was a whole series of events with the members of the investment community, sort of heads of mutual funds, heads of different, uh, you know, investment insurance companies and, and things like that in all different countries. And Tom Steyer introduced it. And he's, I guess he's a U.S., you know, venture capitalist. He's right on board with, uh, you know, what's happening with, right up to speed with what's happening with climate change. In fact, he's countering you know, he's sort of the uh, progressive version of the Koch brothers, right? I mean, completely against the uh, Koch brothers, and he saw lots of money to throw behind his thing, his views and things. So it was interesting because he spoke first, and uh, I managed to, uh, you know, drop him a business card, drop him my card, and, and talk to him briefly about, uh, you know, about startups in the uh, climate solution space, that, that sort of thing. Because I am going to Norway, and I'm going to Norway after to talk to some people about climate change solutions uh, and we're starting a company called Gaia Engineering to look at uh, some different uh, carbon dioxide removal methods and things like that. So what is the situation for would-be climate activists in Paris during the emergency lockdown for terrorism? Basically, I mean, there's lots and lots of events going on, but the government, the Paris government, or well, the French government, they've been limiting, like, large gatherings of people. So they don't want, like, a massive parade through Paris to the conference, for example, you know, with, I mean, there'd be 20, 30, 50,000 people, right, in one space. So they don't, they're not allowing that sort of thing. But there's a lot, you know, those people that were going to go on these marches and rallies and protests and things are still here. They're still in town. So they're, they're kind of trying to figure out, you know, things to do where they don't all get arrested en masse, although a lot of them don't mind that from what I've heard. But, uh, yeah, it's kind of ironic that, uh, you know, the reason that they're not allowed to do the, to do their marches and things is for safety, and yet they tried to do one, and then the police, uh, you know, fired tear gas to disperse them. So it's kind of like, yeah, we're going to fire tear gas at you. It's for your safety, right? It's like <laughs> Orwellian a bit. It's definitely strange. Yeah, but um, I'm seeing an interesting place. It's sort of like a, like a, a backpacker's inn. And there's, you know, many beds in a room. And it's interesting from the people I've been meeting because uh, there's one guy that um, actually cycled from Antarctica to Paris. So he's, uh, there's an event that he's holding uh, next week. 
and it's two guys. They just got their PhDs. Um, one in particular in Antarctica sea ice and uh, the Antarctic uh, continental ice, and they, they're just frustrated because they don't see any, you know, action being done. And then there's uh, another guy I've met. Is uh, he's worked in the solar industry for about seven years, saved up a bit of money, and he wants to, you know, do some climate activism stuff. So he's here. And uh, because he's told me, uh, apparently, on Monday um, at a hotel in Paris called Hotel California, there's going to be a denier, a, a day-long conference by all the climate deniers. So, actually, Marana has done a movie, apparently, that's going to show, and, you know, all of the names in, uh, you know, the big names in climate denial from the heartland and so on are going to be there, apparently. So... I may have to go to that event and, you know, do some, uh, you know, strong arguments about, you know, <laughs> bring down some deniers or something. I, I'm thinking of seriously of going. It's in a very apt place, Hotel California, because uh, you've probably heard of the song, you know, Hotel yep. California. And, you know, there's a line in there that you can you can check in, but you can never check out. And people, most people don't know the story, but the Hotel California is, the song was based off a, hospital so hotel california was a really a mental institution so the name is very apt for climate deniers holding their conference there i think it's great yeah it's the usual tired scientists some of whom so doubt for money for the tobacco lobby in the 1990s i don't think they're going to get a lot of traction in paris i, I really hope they don't yeah I, I don't think they are either and this is why uh you know a bunch of people that are thinking of, of going there and protesting against them are thinking, you know, we shouldn't do anything. We should just ignore them. And, like, if they go and protest and there's stuff going on, that that will only help them get publicity, right? So That's what I'm thinking. So, uh, the media loves conflict, and you provide it. To, if they hold a party and nobody goes, it's probably the best. This is Radio Equalshock with your host, Alex Smith. Paul, I know you're studying uh, about abrupt climate change. Are you picking up any tips or talk about that in Paris? No, I mean, they, I, you know, you you don't hear about methane mentioned very often. You don't hear about the, uh, you know, Arctic temperature amplification. I mean, you don't hear of the key things that are under under underway in the climate system. I mean, basically, Arctic dark getting darker, warming like crazy, jet stream temperature difference to the equator dropping, jet stream slowing, becoming wavy, causing extreme weather. You know, methane coming up, and then the sea ice could be gone by 2020, and we're under abrupt climate change. And no, I mean, you, you just don't hear any of any of this stuff. I mean, I gave press conferences, uh, you know, quite a few in Lima, and uh, it's harder to book them this year. But I'm I'm probably probably going to be involved in a couple, at least, you know, at least uh, you know, radio interviews like with yourself and some other things. But I don't know if I'll be able to get you know a, a venue like I had last year. Uh, but I am working with Stuart Scott, who's working on a movie, and he's got his Climate Matters uh, website. And we had press coverage for the movie in the New York Times uh, just last night. And also there's been articles. There was an article in Bloomberg Business on the methane and on AMEG, actually. It mentioned that a, a group uh, called AMEG is actually uh, proposing that we cool the Arctic to keep the methane in place. And this was the NGOs and uh, groups like Arctic Methane Emergency Group. Right. Okay, so these are the things they're not even talking about. What are the big problems that this Paris meeting is supposed to be trying to confront? What are they trying to come up with? I mean, we've had 20 cops and squats, so is this lucky 21? I, I mean, there's excitement here. There's sort of expectation. 
something will be that, that will happen. Of course, nobody will know until you know it'll go to the last day, and then they'll they'll be they'll negotiate all through the night, and they'll negotiate all through the next night, and then they'll come to some agreement. You know, all the world leaders will come back in. They the world leaders were all here on the first day on the Monday. Sunday and Monday, and then they all left, and they'll all come back on the last day, just as it looks like, uh, you know, agreed talks are breaking down or something, and then they'll all sign something and say, yeah, you know, this was was a success, right? So Now, whether it is or not, I mean, because each country has these uh, INDCs, intended as nationally determined contributions, but if you add up all those INDCs, we're still talking about, you know, a 2.7 degree rise or something way outside the band of uh, the so-called safe two degree which we've just talked about being too high anyway. So, I mean, I've been talking about the, the three legs of a bar stool, and each leg is necessary for the bar stool to stand up. If you pull one away, then it topples over. It's unstable. And one of those uh, legs of the bar stool is zeroing um, emissions. And that's what this whole conference is about, zeroing emissions. But I don't think that's sufficient. I think we also need uh, carbon dioxide removal, to get back down to about 350 parts per million. This is what James Hansen has been saying for a long time, although he doesn't like using the term carbon dioxide removal. And we also need to uh, cool the Arctic uh, with uh, solar radiation management. I think that will buy us time to do these other things. So I think we have to do all of those three things. Otherwise, the bar stool will, will fall over, carrying my metaphor through. Yeah, these COP meetings end up as a kind of theater. You know, I'm often thinking I don't want to go into a hospital with a serious illness when I find that intern who's been working for 36 straight hours. That can cloud the judgment. And yet this is always how we end these things. The future of mankind should be decided by a bunch of overworked, very tired diplomats uh, with no sleep. Yeah, and also, I mean... The experience that a person has at the cop, I think it's, it's, it's to, everybody has a totally different experience. Like, because there's so many people and there's so many events going on in parallel that it, it, everybody will, will have a different kind of, kind of experience. And it does, it, there certainly is a disconnection between the policy wonks and the uh, scientists and, you know, the politicians. There, there, there's a complete disconnect. I mean, uh, you know, I know people that are the policy wonks now. We got to start to wrap up here, Paul. What else should we know about this Paris meeting as we talk halfway along? I try to put updates on on sort of my experiences here um, onto my uh, website, new website, paulbeckwith.net, every couple of days. And uh, I, I managed to meet uh, James Hansen, who I'd, I'd talked to, you know, via emails and followed his work very closely. And he gave an excellent 45-minute talk, which I filmed in, in three different uh, YouTube videos because I'm limited to 15 minutes, and I posted those. And I think that's the only copy that's uh, out there on that particular talk. And and then I did the same thing with Al Gore's speech the, the next day, and then today it was Carney and uh, Bloomberg and and Steyer on the investment side. So that's one thing with the COP. You know, you can run into all of the people. And unlike in Lima, when I had to leave early, I'm here for the duration this year. So I'm still working on getting a badge to get in next week, but uh, there's lots of things I can do if I don't. And, uh, you know, maybe I'll bump into some of the world leaders and things like that. So, uh, you know, stay tuned uh, with, with my website. And if you want another, you know, update towards the end of next week, I'm very happy to do that. And, uh, you know, I have to be optimistic. I'm, I, I think that things are serious enough 
that this year I think they will make make progress. I mean, I wouldn't say it's enough to, to say this is the last cop. You know, we we're we're making great <laughs> gains. You know, because the thing is, is they you know I think the policymakers they don't want all these things to be finalized because they get to keep coming to this conference. I think next year COP twenty two is in Morocco or something. So it, it's a bit ridiculous, actually. You know that there's so many people involved and. And, uh, you know, it, it's crazy. It's like it's a self-propagating machine or something, you know? Everybody can go off for a couple of weeks on, you know, to some place in the world and, 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 uh, the world thinks they're, you know, all negotiating carefully about climate change. I mean, like, what have they done in the last 20 years, right? I mean, we've known, <laughs> you know, so I'm a bit of a, I'm a bit, uh, you know, like, we don't need a cop anymore. Like, let's just put a global carbon, you know, fee and dividend. Global carbon fee and dividend. If country doesn't doesn't use it, then uh, any fossil fuels that they get are higher price. And then uh, you know we can ramp up that price. I mean, this is what Canada should do at least. You know, the, what Trudeau should be doing. And he's getting lots of people telling him this. Uh, but anyway, we'll we'll see. We'll, we'll see. You know, we can remain hopeful. I mean, I. It's going to happen very, very soon. If it doesn't happen this conference, it'll maybe be you know half a year next year. I mean, you know, a couple. Of couple more cities get flooded out you know the, the el nino doesn't go away and the oceans stay super warm and we lose half of the marine life on the surface of the pacific and you know then there's huge food problems and so on i mean people are you know what's happening to our home the earth is uh you know really starting to wake people up i think just as, you know are there is there a critical mass yet i mean listening to the financial community i mean we've got carney we got Bloomberg, we've got Steyer, we've got, you know, these guys are really, you know, they're really powerful people in the financial world. You know, billions of dollars. There was like a fund manager from Sweden talking and there's like 30 billion euros or something. I don't know, some like huge numbers of, of money are under these people. And there's a huge risk. A lot of people are going to, uh, you know, lose tremendous amounts of money when, when the demand destruction occurs and with fossil fuels. It's just a matter of time. It's happened already with coal. Right, and, and uh, they're also realizing that the natural gas is is not uh, not a not going to be a big help. You know, they, they were still trying to push that, right, make the U.S. energy independent, but it's uh, it, it's just a matter of time. I'm a little disturbed to hear the next meeting will be in Morocco because, from my point of view, I would love to see one of these cops held in a city where millions of people can gather around the headquarters and say, "You're not coming out." until you do something that will really save the climate for our children and grandchildren. And I don't think Morocco is going to be the place to do that. So as you say, this will probably run on for a few years, even though we do know what to do. We've been getting a report direct from Paris from our regular correspondent, I think, climate scientist Paul Beckwith. Follow Paul on Facebook and definitely on YouTube. You can learn a lot from Paul's YouTubes. And I'll put links to all that in my weekly show blog at ecoshock.info. Thank you so much, Paul, and good luck at the Climate Circus. Well, thank you, Alex. It's always a pleasure talking to you. Now it's time to talk about real solutions in the real world. This is part of my continuing coverage of ways to stuff carbon back into the soil with nature-based agriculture and biochar. When world politicians and their experts meet in Paris for the COP21 Climate Summit, most will seek industrial answers for what they see as an industrial problem. Perhaps they'll hear about machines to capture carbon and feed it back through a maze of new pipelines to old wells. Maybe dangerous geoengineering will be on the menu. 
but they almost didn't hear about the least known source of greenhouse gases and the single best solution to reducing carbon in the atmosphere. I'm talking about clearing land for food, industrial agriculture, and ways to put carbon back in the soil. And that wasn't even on the menu until a recent move by France to put it there. Our guest, Dr. Benoit Lambert, has been tracking this key issue. Benoit is from Quebec in Canada, and he works with a company called Biochar Génération. Benoit, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you, Alex. Thank you for having me. We have had experts in so-called carbon farming on Radio EcoShock. Thomas Garneau, Albert Bates, Courtney White, and Alan Savory come to mind as my guests. How is it possible using the soil to capture carbon was not even on the agenda for Paris until recently? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I think the main reason for that is because it was pretty easy until now to, uh, to reach targets that were in the Kyoto Protocol. As you know, there were a slowdown of the economy in 2008. Eastern blocs fell apart. The target was 5%, which was really easy to reach. There's only Canada that withdrew, withdrew from the uh, Kyoto Protocol. But besides that, all the countries reached their target really easily. There were some talks about land use and land use change in forestry called LULUCF and the, uh, the jargon of the the carbon credits and the UN meetings, especially in Durban in 2011. You know, so there were talks about sinks and there were talks about sequestration. But it is the responsibility of the, the governments, the, the countries, to reduce their emission. And they are the ones presenting uh, methodologies. They are the ones proposing methodologies that companies in particular, you know, private companies present uh, project with, with methodologies in the UN frame. So it was not that it was not possible to do it. It's just that the science was not really there yet in some cases. And there were just no need to, uh, you know, the price of carbon is just way too low for that at this moment. But I think, you know, there's been a shift in the EU They've been researching the possibility to use soils and lands to uh, sequester carbon for quite some time, five or six years. And one man was involved in that. Uh, his name is Stéphane Le Foll. And Stéphane Le Foll is now the Minister of the uh, agri uh, Agriculture and Forestry in, in France. And he's the one that has been really promoting this idea for the Paris meeting. And who is Laurence Tubiana and what role does she play? Okay, so Laurence Tubiana uh, has been uh, the, the director of um, IDRI, uh, Institute for Development Durable and International Relations for Sustainable Development and International Relations in Paris. Uh, she's been a, a you know a high uh, rank a civil servant for for many years. She's been a friend of the former Prime Minister of France, socialist Prime Minister. So she's been around the, the governments and and, uh, and especially the Socialist Party in France for some time, and now she's the ambassador in charge of the conference in uh, in Paris, special ambassador. And Laurence Tobiana, I, I think I've known about the possibility to sequester greenhouse gases, uh, carbon, with using uh, soils for a little while. But it's really Stéphane Le Foll, I believe, that real, was really the one understanding the science and promoting the idea. 
All right. Now, I think we have to be clear with our listeners that our current industrial farming uses loads of fossil fuel products, including fertilizers, pesticides, and herbicides. It is a major source of greenhouse gas emissions, not a help at this time. So how big a factor is food production to the overall burden of greenhouse gases that we're emitting? Do you know? It's about 30%, 40%, something in that range, I would believe. I would say some might even go further. Uh, what we have to understand is that emissions have started basically when we started agriculture 10,000 years ago. Uh, as, to, as soon as humanity started plowing, uh, we started emit greenhouse gases. And actually, we can see on, on the curve of CO2, on the killing curve, that you know, there were emissions before industrialization. And quite a, you know, about 30 ppm or something like that. It was not like threatening humanity on this planet, but it was already there. And uh, basically with industrialization, the use of fertilizers, the use of tractors, the use of fossil fuel, and the compacting of soils and all of these bad things that we're doing to the soils, uh, we've accelerated greatly, of course, the, um, and of course the, the population that is growing. We're just accelerating the destruction of the soils. Basically, soils are a big part of the problem, but the good news is that it's also a huge part of the future solution, I believe. So we need a huge turnaround in our food system. I mean, first of all, Benoit, we need to get to zero emissions farming. Can we do that? Oh, we can be carbon negative. Uh-huh. We can be. We can sequester huge amounts. And there are people that are, you know, well-known scientists, as Thomas Goro that you interviewed previously, that say that, that, you know, we can actually put back 400 gigaton of carbon in the soils, and, and actually the soil is the only way we can do that. We have to be carbon negative. It's, I mean, this idea that we will limit it to 2 degrees Celsius is, of course, a nonsense. We, we know that, you know, eventually the, the oceans will expand and, and we'll get a 5 six, seven meters rise of the, of the oceans. So a small island would, would disappear, coral reefs would disappear, you know, eventually if, if we get to two degrees Celsius, which is not that much of an impossibility, as you know. You know, we're already at 0.85. Uh, we, we don't want to get to two degrees Celsius. And the only way we won't get to two degrees Celsius is by using lands. I'm talking about grasslands that cover two-thirds of, 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 of lands emerged lands in the world, and I'm talking about agricultural lands, and put back carbon into those soils. So if billions of people insist on eating meat, do you think Alan Savory's methods of herd management could turn that industry from a greenhouse gas maker to carbon capture on a scale that matters? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think... uh, I have to say, at first when I heard about Alan Savory's theory, I was very surprised and and I was kind of very skeptic. But yes, I think it's it's proving to to work. And one of the examples recently at the uh, meeting of artisans of the grasslands with the Savory Institute uh, was in uh, in Argentina. You know, that they're using sheep to uh, restore soils. Of course, you, you've got you to move them around the proper way. We have to mimic nature. We have to learn mimic nature. They call it surrealistic uh, grazing management. And basically what they're doing is that they're mimicking 
nature. So in previous times, there were predators that were moving the herds around and the herds were moving fast and they weren't grazing too much, too long. So they weren't killing the plants and so they weren't creating this desertification that we see when there's no predators. So basically, if we move the herds around fast enough, they will leave manure around and they will leave urine around that will actually enrich the soils. And um, using that technique of fast-moving herds, you can actually have a lot more animals, two or three times more animals than we have today. And they've shown that in, in Argentina, it works with sheep. Of course, it works with cattle, too. And as we know now, if you actually take all the animals out, as they did in, in the Midwest, in the States, or they did in Africa, in some part of Africa, you actually accelerate desertification. You don't slow it down. Animals are not the reason for desertification. It's the bad management of herds of animals, a misunderstanding of how nature works, a misunderstanding of how soils have been created through the thousands of years that is uh, at the root of, of the problem of, the, of desertification that we see all around the world. We've just heard about biochar from our Radio EcoShock guest, Albert Bates. Benoit Lambert, how are you involved in that? I actually believe that Canada would be the, the best place to create a big-scale industry with biochar because I worked in the forestry sector for, for some time, and uh, there's so much residues, waste, from forestry not only from forestry, just from branches that are broken, you know, when there are storms around Canada. Uh, we could actually paralyze this biomass, this very good quality biomass. Most of the time it's very dry already. And produce some, it's a char, charcoal-like product that can be used in agriculture. And I would actually be a primer to uh, jumpstart soils that have been really uh, badly affected by plowing and badly affected by um, using too much fertilizers and, and, and letting the soils bare for, as we're doing in, in conventional agriculture. So we could use biochar as a primer to jumpstart rapidly a new, new agriculture towards healthy soils. Now getting back to Paris, what have you heard about the planned discussions about soil capture of carbon there? Yeah, there's a project, a declaration that will be made on December 1st. Declaration of intention is called the Four Per Thousand Project, a research project that is being proposed by France. Yeah, it's 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 the first time that within an official meeting that they're insisting to use soils to put carbon back in, in the soils. It's a great initiative. I mean, it's a huge change in the way land is being seen into the negotiations. What do the numbers four out of a thousand mean? It basically m means that, you know, this is enough carbon being put back in the soils to stop global warming uh, fairly rapidly within 10 to 20 years. That's what he's, uh, he's saying. Uh, I, I don't know the details, you know, how many tons it means per hectare. And so I think it's about a ton per hectare per year or something like that. But those numbers, surprisingly, are fairly easy to reach. I mean, we have proof of that with Gabe Brown. Uh, we have proof of that with David Brandt, for example, that has been you know, doing the no-tillage and cover crops, uh, you know, holistic grazing management for the last 30, 40 years in the case of David Brandt. There are 
many examples around the world of people that have been practicing this. This is like organic farming multiplied by three or four because they're not just not using chemicals, they're actually feeding their soil, you know, with having their soil covered all the time, no uh, barren soil, and using the roots to put carbon in the soil. The roots of plants, cover crops, can actually bring carbon in the soil, and we now know that globalin, which is uh, the, the product that sticks everything of, of the carbon together, called globalin, it's been discovered in 1997, plays a big role in the dynamic of, of life in the soils. So all of this has been shown, but funny enough, it's been shown by people that are not necessarily academic, but people that are practicing uh, agriculture. Not, not necessarily people that are involved with big research center, but are, that have been understanding how soils work and I've been trying uh, making error, but with all the knowledge that they've gathered for the last 30, 40 years, like the case of Gabe Brown is quite impressive. I mean, we can put together uh, a package of, of measures that will bring back the carbon in soils from one below 1% in some cases to 7, 8% within 10, 15 years maybe, which is, you know, it's amazing. It's, it's really surprising that this idea it's just emerging now, but it's the way it is. <laughs> so it's good news. So one concern that some people have is whether the carbon captured by different farming methods will really stay in the soil for very long. Will it? Yes, it will. It will. Well, biochar, as you know, is recalcitrant to decomposition. We know that because of the terra preta in the Amazon, the black dirt of the Amazon that have been, has been there for thousands of years in some cases and is just not moving. So recalcitrant decomposition means it's not like compost. Compost will get back into the air very rapidly, same with manure, but charcoal doesn't. It's just, it's just there for thousands of years. And it's the same with the carbon that is being brought in the soils by roots. It just doesn't go back to the atmosphere so rapidly unless it's being plowed deeply, like some farmers still do, unfortunately. Plowing is a very bad practice. I mean, we have to understand that plowing doesn't exist in nature, barren soil doesn't exist in nature, and we have to mimic nature. We have to mimic nature. If we don't do that, we're doing mistakes after mistakes. Well, this is something I've been concerned about. I mean, farming has been about passing down techniques through generations. It's still that way in many parts of the world. And when we add in lack of education, perhaps hundreds of languages and millions of people outside the Internet, are we dreaming to think we could change world farming into a climate tool in time to really work? Well, this is what I'm saying. This has to be a pharaonic dimension if we're serious about solving the climate crisis. This cannot be of small scale, you know, I mean, yes, it will be small scale for small, small farmers, but, you know, governments have to get ambitious about this. And, and, you know, the World Bank has to put billions maybe in it. And, well, you know, actually the World Bank, I'm talking about governments in general, if we really take the, the problem of climate crisis seriously. But we have no other tool. Of course, we have to reduce emissions. We know that by now. I mean, we have to go towards renewable energies, electric car, whatever, you know, bicycles. But we, we have to take the steering wheel of the climate. And the only steering wheel we have is to use the soil. 
You know, if we really want to start seriously manage the carbon cycle, the only solution is to use the soils. So, Benoit Lambert, if I go down the street asking people about solutions for climate change, I'll bet few will name agriculture as a way out, and even fewer will know what biochar is. Why do you think this important subject has so little media attention, and what can we do to get this movement really rolling? Yeah, good question. I, I did a conference in February in Geneva. Many of the people in the audience were have been activists for 10, 20 years, some even more than that, and they had never heard of what I was talking about. <laughs> you know, I'm talking about people that are very, very educated about environmental issues. So, you know, they were like, at their mind blown, you know, it's just like, wow, what are you talking about here? Using animals to, they always thought that animals were the problem, you know, that grazing was the problem. So did I. <laughs> so this is a shift of paradigm, you know, shift, a paradigm shift that we're, we're facing. And uh, I was as surprised as they were when I first heard about biochar. Then from biochar, I moved into carbon farming two years ago, discovered all of these great sites like soil for climate. And, and I was really so surprised. I realized that biochar was only one of the many solutions that we have. And the reason for this is, is that people don't know about it. I think it's because the science is not really driving this movement. It's farmers isolated on their, on their farm that I've decided to do things differently and I've seen that it's working and I've, I've been very successful doing it. And now they're starting to talk about it. They're, now they're coming out and saying, wait a second, this all industrial agriculture is not working. It's destroying the soils. It's killing the life in soils. And we need that life in soil to have healthy soil and have productive lands. And yes, we can actually be more productive than uh, conventional agriculture if we make ourselves healthy. Yeah, so the science is lagging behind farmers, basically. So this is why the media don't talk about it very much, because the media think, you know, if it doesn't come from a university or a research center, it must be shaky. Well, in fact, it's the uh, conventional agriculture that is very shaky. <laughs> but they're running, they're running, you know, uh, finance and they're running, as we know, the corporate media. So as we wrap up, I'm curious about your work in Quebec. What are you up to? Well, I've been trying to uh, develop biochar as an industry for five, six years since I came back from Europe. I lived in Europe for 20 years. Yeah, possibilities, I believe, are there. There are huge mountains of wood residues in, in northern Canada, generally speaking. And, and Canada has 300 tons of carbon per hectare, uh, something like that. It's, this is like six, seven times more than what you find in the southern United States and in most of the United States, in fact. So the, the level of carbon is high enough in Canada that we could produce biochar on a big scale sustainably. So, yeah, there are possibilities to use biochar, as I said, as a primer, uh, to jumpstart healthy soils and healthy agriculture. So are there web resources or social media sites on this topic? In English, we have Soils for Climate. That is really a place where, where all the information transit. And we also have Soil Age on Google. 
Thank you so much. We've been talking about the number one world-scale way to harmlessly remove, beneficially remove, greenhouse gases from the atmosphere. We can end fossil fuel farming and put carbon back in the soil. Our guest is Dr. Benoit Lambert from Biochar Génération in Quebec, Canada. Merci, Benoit. Merci, Alex. À bientôt. We are totally out of time. My thanks to everyone who tweeted about last week's show with Dr. Kevin Anderson. It literally went around the world. Get links for this program in my weekly show blog, published every Wednesday at ecoshock.info. I'm Alex Smith. Thank you for listening, and let's get together again next week. Music